Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, Solving the Unsolvable Case. Today's episode on No Home for Heroes is taken from case number 0033. Yes, one of our older ones, in the files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. So here's the question for you this morning. What do you do when someone tells you that something is impossible? That it can't be done? Or better yet, when your employer insists that you should not put much effort into your job because you're just simply not likely to succeed in the assigned task. Well, I'm your host, Rick Stone, bringing you another great and true story from our vault of history's military mysteries. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. We invite you to listen to all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast or streaming platform you prefer. We dedicate this episode to a very special person who I unashamedly confess is my best friend. I have known retired police chief David James for almost half a century. We worked together on the command staff in the Dallas Police Department, where one of our most cherished awards, one that we could only get from our chief of police, was a paper photocopy of a universal sign with a circle around it and a slash mark through it, through the word can't. C-A-N apostrophe T. Can't. This signified that we had occasionally accomplished what was seemingly the impossible. David called me when the story you are about to hear today was featured in the Chattanooga Times newspaper. David told me how proud he was of our efforts to solve this case and to help bring closure to the many families of American heroes missing in action. Thanks, 3441. Thanks for all your support. Thanks for all your friendship that you have given me through the years. This one's for you. Now, on with the show. I remember first receiving this case to investigate just like it was yesterday. Funny how I can remember the details of first seeing a file assigned to me at the Department of Defense in Hawaii in September 2011, (laughs) but I can't remember what I had for breakfast or even if I had breakfast. Come to think of it, I think I missed the most important meal of the day. Go figure. Which kind of makes me ponder. If it's so important, why can't I remember it? (laughs) Well, that's the kind of questioning attitude I needed with case number. 0002 1980. The first thing that caught my eye when I opened the beige manila folder was a yellow sticky note. You know, one of those, I don't know what you call them. Uh, Sticky note, that's good. With one handwritten word in blue pen. The word was unsolvable. And the paper under it was a memo written by a Department of Defense historian in April 2006. 
The memo was intended as justification why none of the 94 X-File cases of unknowns from the Battle of Tarawa should warrant any further waste of time to investigate. The last paragraph of the memo read, quote, For all the reasons listed above, JPAC, that's the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, and DPMO, that's the Defense Prisoner of War Missing Personnel Office, staff cannot state with certainty that any single X-file represents the remains of any single missing service member from the Battle of Tarawa. Well, in the intervening 11 years since I first read that memo, we have found so many slam-dunk cases where the X-Files definitely represented the remains of missing American service members that the memo has become a running joke among our researchers and investigators. Something like the headline predictions of Dewey Defeats Truman or World Ends Thursday or World Ends Friday, whatever. And by the way, both JPAC and DPMO were later disbanded due to a flurry of negative press and congressional investigations over managerial ineptitude. But the author of that stupid statement is now a high-ranking manager in the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency, DPAA. <laughs> Go figure again. But, to be perfectly fair... Case number 0002-80 was certainly not a slam dunk. It was one of the toughest to solve of all those we have ever investigated. But, and there's always a but in history's military mysteries, as you will soon learn, this case was not unsolvable. 0002-80 was recovered on the island of Tarawa during a waterline construction project across the island that lasted for eh, a little bit over two years. A four-person team for the United States Army Central Identification Laboratory went to Tarawa in March 1980 to accept a large number of commingled remains that were recovered during the course of digging the trenches for the waterline. The laboratory team were given 20 sets of commingled remains. One group of remains was ultimately identified as containing three Caucasian individuals. Two Caucasians from this group were identified as Marines, Private Ernest E. Tucker and Private First Class Thomas L. Skurlock. The unidentified Caucasian in this group was numbered as, you guessed it, 0002-80. The partial remains of 17 other individuals which were recovered and identified as mongoloid, which were probably Japanese soldiers or Korean laborers, were returned to the Japanese government. Back in the laboratory in Honolulu, 0002-80 was examined on 8 May 1980. It was determined that the remains belonged to a Caucasoid male, 20 to 24 years of age, with an estimated stature of 70.8 inches. The skeletal chart indicated only 13 partial bones present, along with 8 teeth. There was evidence of a fractured skull, and it was reported that 0002-80 was, quote, average, unquote, in muscularity. <laughs> Not much help there. 
a board of officers reviewed the case on 18 March 1982 and determined that the remains were, quote, unidentifiable, end quote. 0002-80 was transferred to the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, also known as the Punch Bowl, in Honolulu, Hawaii, and buried on 31 March 1982 as an unknown in Section I, Grave 1144. And there, the unknown Marine lay for over 30 years, and the case file was ignored complete with the confirmation memo and the sticky note by one of my predecessor historians that it was futile to investigate, quote, unsolvable, in quote, case 0002-80. <laughs> well, naturally, I thought otherwise. One other thing I remember distinctly is that when I visited the Punchbolt Cemetery to ensure that 0002-80 was still there, <laughs> he was, although... Seven others that I looked for had already been identified, even though the government listed them as being missing in action. But when I visited 0002-80's grave, I noticed that the grave is actually nowhere near most of the other Tarawa casualties from, from the punch bowl. In fact, 0002-80 was close to the entrance of the cemetery, kind of off to the left a little bit. And when I found the grave marker, someone had recently placed a palm frond and an orange tropical flower on top of the marker that read unknown. It was the only such adornment that I'd ever saw at the punch bowl. Almost to say, hey, I may just have a number and no name right now, but I was a real person, so go find my name. What a challenge. On 5 October 2011, I tried to do just that, using a method I developed at the Dallas Police Department called the Random Incident Statistical Correlation System, or RISC. I was able to cull down the number of possible matches to a shorter list of most likely matches to 002-80 and I submitted my report to the Department of Defense. One of those most likely matches was Corporal Thomas Harley Cooper, United States Marine Corps. Corporal Cooper was born in Omaha, Nebraska. He was known as Harley to his family and friends. At the time of the 1930 census, Harley was living with his parents, Thomas G. and Aline Cooper, two sisters and a brother in Detroit, Michigan. Harley's father worked in an autom automobile factory in Detroit. Harley's mother, sadly, died in 1935, at age 35, when Harley was only 14 years old. Harley completed the 8th grade, but dropped out of school and began work at the Richmond Hosiery Mill in Rossville, Georgia, as a textile worker. Harley's weekly wage at the mill was $14. $14 a week. Is that $56 a month? Hmm. After working at the textile mill for eight months, Harley was accepted into the Marine Corps in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he was formally enlisted in Nashville, Tennessee on 18 September 1940. He was either 17 or 18 years of age. I kind of suspect he was probably 17 
but his father signed the papers for him, which allowed him to enlist. Private Cooper completed all the necessary paperwork to receive $8,000 in U.S. government life insurance, and he named his father as his next of kin. Private Cooper's last recorded dental examination was on 25 September 1940, shortly after he enlisted. His file indicates he had 10 cavities and fillings, one extraction, and no wisdom teeth were present, which was not unusual due to his very young age. Private Cooper had no previous fractures, tattoos, major scars, or birthmarks noted in his medical records. He was a cigarette smoker. And a family reference sample, that's a, you know, a sample of his DNA, was not in JPAC's files as of May 2012. This failure to search for a family member to contribute a sample will become very important later in our story, as you shall see. Private Cooper was 72 and a half inches tall, just a little over 6 feet, and he weighed 144 pounds, and his records say he either had hazel eyes or blue eyes. Records vary. And he had a ruddy complexion. His cap size was 7 and an 8, and he had 20-20 eyesight in both eyes. Private Cooper completed his United States Marine Corps basic training at Paris Island, South Carolina, with a 2nd Recruit Battalion. Private Cooper was unable to qualify with any standard Marine Corps weapon during basic training and was rated as unqualified with the Springfield Model 1903 .30-06 caliber rifle. He was unqualified with the Colt Model 1911 .45 caliber pistol and he was even unqualified with the hand grenade. But he did qualify as a second-class swimmer. On 26 November 1940, Private Cooper was assigned to the Marine base at the Jacksonville Naval Air Station in Jacksonville, Florida. On 14 April 1941, Private Cooper received a specialist fifth-class rating as a carpenter or painter. He was promoted to private first-class on 24 April 1941. He requested a transfer to the Marine Amphibian Tractor Detachment in Dunedin, Florida, which was granted on 6 October 1941. With the Amphibian Tractor Detachment, Private First Class Cooper trained as a crewman on an LVT-1. That's a landing vehicle tract, which was an amphibious tractor, sometimes called an alligator. Corporal um, PFC Cooper, he's going to be corporal later, but right now he's just PFC, private first class. His unit was designated as A Company, 2nd Amphibious Tractor Battalion, on 3 December 1941. And despite the fact that he could not qualify with any Marine Corps weapon, PFC Cooper received his specialist 5th class rating as a crewman slash gunner on 19 December 1941. In April 1942, now Corporal Cooper and his unit were transported across country by train to San Diego, California. On 10 June 1942, Corporal Cooper embarked aboard the USS President Adams in San Diego Harbor. The Adams set sail on 1 July 1942 and made stops in British Tonga Islands and the Gilbert Islands before Corporal Cooper embarked at Espiritu Santo Island in the French New Hebrides on 18 August 1942. 
He was temporarily detached to the Provisional Raider Battalion on 28 September 1942, where Corporal Cooper served with the rear echelon in the Espiritu Santos Islands during the Guadalcanal campaign. He embarked, embarked, embarked? Can you embark? No. He embarked aboard the USS Henry T. Allen at Espiritu Santo Island on 3 February 1943, destined for Wellington, New Zealand. Corporal Cooper and his unit arrived in Wellington on 11 February 1943, and it was going to be quite a stay for Corporal Cooper. While in New Zealand, Corporal Cooper married Ray Clarina Warner on 21 August 1943. She was a local New Zealand lass. A daughter named Virginia Catherine Cooper was later born to Corporal Cooper's wife, in 1944, it was a daughter that Corporal Cooper would never see. Corporal Cooper participated with the 2nd, the 6th, and the 8th Marines in amphibious landing training along the New Zealand coast from 10 through September October, from 10 through 17 October 1943. He was then transported aboard the USS Harry Lee on 1 November 1943 to the French New Hebrides Islands for additional amphibious landing training before proceeding on to Tarawa. The initial landings on Tarawa were scheduled to begin at 0830 hours. That's about eight and a half after the hour in the morning on 20 November 1943. Corporal Cooper's A Company crewed a newer version of the landing vehicle track known as the LVT-2 that comprised the second and the third waves. Most of the LVTs made it safely over the coral reef, but once over the reef inside the lagoon, they began to take heavy Japanese defensive fire. The final 200 yards into the beach were the roughest, especially for those LVTs approaching areas known as Red Beach 1 and Red Beach 2. The vehicles were hammered by well-aimed fire from heavy and light machine guns and 40mm anti-boat guns. The Marines fired back, expending thousands of rounds from the 50 caliber machine gun mounted forward on each LVT-2 and two 30 caliber machine guns mounted near, near the rear of the vehicles. And, let's face it, Based on his records with weapons proficiency, the likelihood that Corporal Cooper actually hit anything with his fire, well, it's probably very small. On the other hand, the exposed gunners on the LVTs, like Corporal Cooper, were very easy targets, and dozens were cut down. Corporal Cooper's individual deceased personnel file that the Foundation found at St. Louis, Missouri, has the following notation. Quote, service record and death record indicate Corporal Thomas H. Cooper died as a result of gunshot wounds received 20 November 1943 while participating in action against the enemy on Basio Island, Tarawa Atoll, Gilbert Islands. Details of death and disposition of remains unknown. End quote. Within days of the battle, Corporal Cooper became one of what would ultimately be 521 American service members officially listed as missing in action on Tarawa. 
In April 2013, Corporal Cooper's family contacted the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation and requested a comprehensive family report on his case, which we immediately provided. As we do in each of our investigations, we encourage the family to submit a sample of their DNA to the Department of Defense, despite the JPAC laboratory's insistence during my tenure there that DNA was, quote, voodoo science, end quote. The family did provide the DNA sample as we recommended, and on 4 November 2019, the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory used that voodoo science to identify Corporal Thomas Harley Cooper as, you guessed it, unknown 0002-80. The unsolvable case was finally solved. And on March 10, 2022, Corporal Thomas Harley Cooper was given a final resting place with his name on the headstone in America's most hallowed ground for all our heroes, Arlington National Cemetery. I like to think that someone brought a palm frond and maybe an orange tropical flower to the burial ceremony in Arlington. Welcome home, Harley. Welcome home. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out all of our other podcasts on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. No Home for Heroes is featured on just about any podcast site all across the world. We greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. We again thank you for your support of our mission to provide information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. Every assistance counts, and you do make a difference. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas, I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them.